The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Everybody knows the storm is coming fast. The day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Teot Wauki special, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello and welcome to this Teot Wauki special of Physical Attraction. Today I have a very special guest on the show. Martin Pfeiffer is a PhD student at the University of New Mexico. On July 16th, 1945, the world's first atomic bomb, part of the Manhattan Project, was detonated in the desert nearby. The explosion was codenamed Trinity. You can visit the site of this first nuclear explosion today. Rob Oppenheimer, one of the scientists involved in the project, famously could not erase from his mind when he saw that mushroom cloud go up. A quotation from Hindu scripture. I am become death, destroyer of worlds. The test, appropriately enough, was conducted in a desert called the Jordana del Muerto, which roughly translates as the journey of the dead man. Martin Pfeiffer is an anthropologist who studies how we construct and circulate beliefs and values about nuclear weapons. You can find him on Twitter at NuclearAnthro, and his WordPress blog is at deusexatomica.wordpress.com, where you can find all manner of articles about nuclear weapons in the modern era, most recently a very interesting one about North Korea. I interviewed him about the modern-day threat from nuclear weapons. We discuss all manner of things from historical nuclear accidents and errors, right up until how nuclear weapons could be used in the modern age. I don't want to spoil it too much, but if you think, for example, that there's a very complicated and airtight procedure governing how nuclear weapons might get deployed, you may be in for a rude awakening. There are one or two incidents of bad language in the interview, but as I'm sure Martin would agree, it's better to drop F-bombs than H-bombs. I hope you enjoy it. So, Martin, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. So, we've got a few questions to talk about here, and the main topic of our conversation is going to be the end of the world in thermonuclear fire. So, hopefully, we'll be able to keep it light. So, I guess the first question I wanted to ask is, um, how did you first become interested in global thermonuclear war? I am not actually very sure. Uh, so particularly as I've progressed kind of in my studies, this question has been coming up a lot. And at the moment, I'm taking, for instance, a narrative life history class where we've talked about how in our society there is a particular desire for kind of this coherent explanation for why we chose the jobs we did or our research topics that we did. But I really don't have a particular moment that was especially traumatic or horrifying after which I said, this is it. This is what I want to study. I was born in 82. One of my first big memories is the Berlin Wall coming down. Uh, I grew up in the 90s. You know, it wasn't during the height of the Cold War when Reagan was in and we were all, you know, 
by the time I can remember at least, uh, a lot of that fear of imminent death had really kind of faded into the background. Um, so in some sense, you know, I can't help but think that like the lack of a particularly traumatic moment as a child with nuclear risk kind of allowed me to have that headspace of like, okay, this is something worth studying. You know, and, I mean, with that said, my dad worked in nuclear power most of my, my childhood that I can remember. Uh, and certainly nuclear weapons have been something that I've been aware of. But I can't really point to any one moment and say, you know, this is it. This is why. Okay, that's fair enough. I mean, you know, it, it, not every academic story has to begin with someone seeing a mushroom cloud above Hiroshima yeah. or a site in New Mexico and saying, my God, you know, I am become death destroyer of worlds. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up the fact that, you know, you grew up in the 90s and I grew up slightly later than that. And so neither of us have actually been in the... Um, in the Cold War era, when you really felt the threat of nuclear war being completely imminent, you know, that's not our uh, lived experience. But since the Cold War's ended, and until fairly recently with North Korean crisis in the last few years, I feel like the threat of global thermonuclear war has receded in the public consciousness. But I'm doing this series of shows um, about possible ends of the world, and I've gone, you know, 10 oh. earthquakes, 9 supervolcanoes, 8, you know, things from outer space, and I still wanted to put nuclear weapons at number one, because I still think it's the biggest threat to us. So do you think that maybe yeah. since because the Cold War has finished, there's a lack of vigilance and we're at greater risk? Quantifying nuclear risk is extremely difficult, Yes, uh, and especially in terms of any sort of way that isn't just pulling numbers out of my ass. You know, that said, I would mark the high point or one of the high points is the 62 Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Where there were several several ways that we actually almost did end up getting into, you know, a, a global nuclear conflict. For instance, the United States, starting on the 30th, we're running a, you know, a um, we're basically running through the command and control and exercising our, our nuclear weapon uh, system. U.S. STRATCOM is doing a set of exercises. In 1983, uh, with Able Archer 83, you know, the, the Soviets were in the grip of a war fear. They were worried that the United States was going to nuke them first. The Reagan administration had done a series of very provocative uh, intelligence gathering and psychological operations, like penetrating Russian airspace with bombers and stuff. And we haven't been doing that, uh, not to Russia at least. Now, North Korea is a different situation a little bit, but... I don't think that we're quite back to, like, 1983 yet, but I do agree and would certainly say that, you know, for a lot of people, this lived experience of nuclear risk in this moment with North Korea becoming a visible nuclear weapons state, part of the reaction against it is that we got out of it for a while, and it's really uncomfortable to start to realize or to remember, like, Oh, yeah, you know, everything I love can uh, kind of be ended in an hour by just a couple people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, you're right to say that people are re-realizing this with the emergence of a new threat. But, of course, the old threat never really went away. And you mentioned two, yeah. um, two major incidents there, which was in the 62 Cuban Missile Crisis and then in 1983 when there were tensions over Abel Archer and so on. And we talk about this a little bit in uh, some of the shows, but I think both of those are marked by actually the worst, the closest we came to nuclear war were two incidents that happened almost completely by accident. You had the, yeah. uh, the Vasily Arpikov incident, yep. Arkhipov incident um, with the submarine and the Petrov incident where 
there was a false alarm on the defense system. So, I mean, w- would you like to talk about those and sort of anything that you know about those? Because I know a little bit, but not not as much as an expert would. Every, every oh, I'm I'm far from an expert. Um, <laughs> anytime anytime I read about the the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, I get the the ship myself terrifying cold chill uh, because <laughs> it, there were just a whole range of ways in which that almost got out of control, and it was arguably thanks to Khrushchev and Kennedy's very strong and very explicit realization that it was there was a significant risk of accidental or unintended escalation and their realization of the consequences of that that we managed to avoid it. Now, as you point out, the situation on the ground is almost where it got decided, right? So you had the... As you noted, the torpedo incident where the Soviet boats, which weren't supposed to be operating in those waters and the conditions on them were terrible with heat and ventilation and such, kind of decided, you know what, screw it. We could already be at war. They're dropping depth charges on us. Arm the nuclear torpedo, right? Difficult to see any, right? I mean, if if a U.S. carrier group or whatever just vanished in a, in a mushroom cloud thanks to a Soviet nuclear torpedo, it's difficult not to see how that wouldn't escalate pretty rapidly. Similarly, if the United States had invaded Cuba, you know, they already had uh, three rockets over ground on the ground there, right? There are tactical nuclear weapons or so-called tactical nuclear weapons on Cuba. There was the U-2 that got lost over Soviet airspace, and we scrambled um, nuclear air-to-air missile-armed tactical air command fighters to escort it back. So, like I said, the Cuban Missile Crisis is just terrifying to me. Um, By the time of 83, one of the things that was also really difficult about 83 is that the Reagan administration, in addition to being kind of decentralized and loosey-goosey, just kind of assumed the Soviets were faking it. When they were talking about being afraid or U.S. actions as being provocative, the Reagan administration just figured they were doing it for propaganda. Or, you know, because, I mean, clearly the United States was the good guy, right? We would never strike first. (laughs) One of the really fascinating accounts to come out recently, he's uh, at NSA Nate on Twitter, um, and I forget his real last name at the moment, but he wrote and edited this really great book about Able Archer 83 that talks about also a uh, this guy... Perutz, who was, um, during Able Archer 83, the Soviets started putting certain uh, tactical nuclear strike aircraft on higher alert. And Perutz said, you know what, we're not going to play this game. I'm not going to respond and put my aircraft on higher alert, right? So, I mean, another one of those uh, escalation spirals was avoided. Mm-hmm. So, just for context for the listeners, the Able Archer 83, this was a war game that was done by the U.S. military where they um, they effectively simulated what it would be like if they were invading the USSR via Europe, I think. And the idea is that the Soviets actually saw that and took it seriously and thought that the troop movements weren't wargaming, but were in fact a a real maneuver. And there's been a lot of debate in the literature since about how seriously it was taken and how liable the uh, Soviets were to put their missiles and planes and bombers and so on on high alert. The Able Archer was really an an unfolding or the apotheosis of kind of the uh, war scare of the early 80s for the Soviet Union. Um, Mm -hmm. And Able Archer, in particular that year, it was an annual exercise. Uh, One of the persistent worries for everybody involved has always been the possibility of using exercises for cover. And you see mm-hmm. North Korea mm-hmm. saying the same thing about US South Korean um exercises as well. I don't I think able I don't think able I think Able Archer was a response to Soviet like the, the game scenario was a response to Soviet invasion. I don't remember the exact details, but that year there were also differences in terms of how it was being carried out. There were different people participating um, and so on. And like I said, it was within that context of the Reagan administration having literally poked the bear for several years. So the Soviets um responded as you do by doing things like raising their nuclear force structures. So 
uh, Soviet submarines, according to the Presidential Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board report, went from being able to fire their missiles in several hours to 30 to 20 minutes, which is wow. a pretty dramatic yeah. shift. Yeah. Uh, that's the kind that's of shift you need if you're planning a retaliation, isn't it? Because, you know, the amount of warning yeah. you get is minutes, if, if not. I suppose the submarines get slightly longer warning because there's a, there's an idea that they might not be taken out in the initial strike. Yeah. But uh, it's still definitely counter-strike measures. Yeah, and, and the Soviets were always very worried, as were the, were, was the U.S., but the Soviets especially, perhaps, about uh, decapitation. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's where mm -hmm. you also get into the construction of Dead Hand, the details of which are still not totally known, you know. Um, but so we want to define a few of these terms for people. There's, so there's this whole idea about how do you win a nuclear war? And the conventional wisdom that was sort of developed quite early on and that was maybe had some influence due to people like the uh, gung-ho Air Force General Curtis LeMay and people like this were saying that okay. the only way you can win a nuclear war is by killing the entire opposition and devastating their nuclear capability so that they can't possibly strike back. But then there's also this decapitation theory, the idea of which is you just go for the leadership so that the state is thrown into chaos and can't effectively retaliate because everyone who could authorize a retaliation is dead. Have I got that right? Uh, for the most part. Usually, you know, okay. the, the first scenario you mentioned where you go after both counterforce, so you try and attack all the nuclear delivery vehicles and weapons, and the leadership is the splendid first strike scenario. The U.S. has usually, when drawing up our nuclear weapon war plans, uh, adversary nuclear capabilities have usually been one of the highest, if not the highest targeted um, categories. So uh, the PSYOP-62, which was the first, like, unified U.S. nuclear weapons program, granted high um, high priority to those targets. Later on, as like Kennedy and Eisenhower saw what the PSYOP entailed and were like, holy shit, this is nuts! Um, <laughs> they started doing things like adding withhold categories so that you didn't have to bomb all of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and China. You could just bomb the Soviet Union or just bomb China. And you could even withhold leadership so that you had somebody to negotiate with to try and end the war before it went. Most people died. I think those scenarios are wildly optimistic. The idea that you could, especially back then when you were talking about even a relatively quote unquote small attack involving hundreds or thousands of warheads detonating, like good luck getting comms through in that environment. And we have seen realistic situations where, you know, there have been incidents where people have thought that even a single nuclear weapon has exploded on U.S. territory. So I remember there was one case, for example, where there was a power outage um, in, gosh, a particular city, and it mimicked the power outage they'd expect if there had been a nuclear attack on that city. And what happened straight away is the Air Force people on the ground are jumpy, they scramble people towards bombers, people are taking off ready to drop bombs on cities and things like this, and you just think, under what circumstances, if everyone's thinking, I have four minutes before I could be incinerated by nuclear fire, are you going to be able to coordinate your response in any meaningful way? You know, I think the, the idea that there would be this... Uh, level of coordination you're right to say that people are kind of deluding themselves to think oh we could do a strike that only took out these targets and then negotiate and then you know do another strike or something like this it armageddon would break loose without a shadow of a doubt that's i i am not familiar with the incident you're talking about and i would love to read more if you could track down the link on it but oh yeah um, sure so it's uh, one of the incidents that i think is mentioned the nuclear files it wasn't in eric schlosser's book uh, which has a lot okay. of nuclear incidents in it but yeah. it's it, it's uh 
It's one of the ones that's floating around. My favorite, or, you know, favorite for a very particular definition of favorite is when uh, somebody hit the intruder alert and instead it sounded the fire everything alarm at the airbase. <laughs> so the yeah. bombers were going to take off and it turned out that the intruder had been a bear trying yes. to get over the fence. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but this, this is the, this is the issue that I think is, um, people don't think of because it may well be that you trust your leadership. Although perhaps in the US that's not the case at the moment. Uh, um, <laughs> it may well be that you yeah. trust all of your actors to be rational. And you can see this even today in the debate on North Korea, right? People are saying, oh, oh yes. Kim Jong-un would never, would never launch a missile at the US because he and the authorities have everything to lose from, um, you know, a, a nuclear war that would destroy the North Korean yeah. state. But this assumes that your actors are rational and it assumes that everything is done intentionally. And in reality, when we look at the near yep. nuclear incidents, the biggest risk is when stuff isn't done intentionally. It's just, you know, a, a mistake, a misunderstanding, an error in communication, a, a definition of mutually assured destruction, which is the sort of doctrine that governs nuclear weapons policy and people who talk about things like the atomic peace, the Pax Atomica. I think it would yeah. be good if we could uh, sort of define that for the listeners. Well, I, I don't think anybody in the U.S. actually believes in mutually, or at least most of the military establishment doesn't really believe, or is very uncomfortable with the idea of mutually assured destruction. But it comes out of uh, the, the early 1960s when we were trying to answer the question of how much is enough? How many nuclear weapons do you need for this concept of nuclear deterrence in which the adversary will have so much to lose by attacking you that they won't do it because they know that they will be punished in such a way that they won't get anything out of it? So, you know, in many ways, MAD was a fact of life rather than a policy because the United mm -hmm. States, at least, uh, consistently and constantly, and I assume we still do, attempted to explore ways in which nuclear combat or the use of nuclear weapons could be done without leading to a full-scale war. And in part, this was uh, related to economic decisions about force levels in Europe, uh, right, post-World War II. Uh, you know, people are expensive, and it, at least by the army and by some others, and Eisenhower in part, right, nuclear weapons, especially so-called tactical nuclear weapons, were viewed as a cheaper way for defense. At the same time, they kind of fell into what's called the fallacy of the last move in that, right, we deploy so-called tactical nuclear weapons, well, so will the Soviets. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. At which point, you know, the supposed advantage enjoyed by uh, NATO troops on the ground is a little bit less. Yes. So just uh, to clarify for everyone, I think the difference between a strategic and a tactical nuclear weapon is the strategic nuclear weapons are high yield and they're designed for going after cities. So these are the ones that you'd fire at New York or London or Kiev or Moscow or whatever. The tactical ones are instead meant to be used on some hypothetical battlefield where you would, you know, win win the battle by using a slightly lower yield nuclear weapon. But of course, the problem with having these tactical nuclear weapons is that because they are designed to be used by the weapons of war, you know, people start saying, well, why don't we put them on ships, which yeah. is what the submarines had, and why don't we put them on airplanes, you know, cruise missiles with nuclear tips and things like this. And I think the concern artillery. is... Artillery. Yeah, artillery even. Is that a thing? Yep, it was. Up until well, the late 80s, we had... All of our 8-inch uh, and 155-millimeter howitzers were all dual-capable. Wow. I mean, and but obviously there's so many issues with this as, as a concept, because we have this, uh, this strong suspicion that any nuclear conflict, any conflict where nuclear weapons are used, instantly crushes this, this psychological threshold where it becomes acceptable for the other side to retaliate with nuclear weapons. And so I think 
you'd probably be skeptical of the idea that you could deploy a, a tactical nuke on on a battlefield to end a battle and not have that escalate into something much worse. Yeah, and I, I would even challenge the right the, the definition or the, the between the idea of tactical and strategic has always been kind of incoherent and fuzzy. Um, okay. Some of the yields for the so, so I kind of prefer theater weapon in a sense um, because it does restrict the area of deployment rather than trying to make a yield or a distinction. I would argue that any use of nuclear weapons are, especially at this point, but certainly during the Cold War also would have been strategic, right? There's no tactical way to break that so-called conventional nuclear fire break. In a sense, right, what does it matter how the target is destroyed? So we can also see some of these debates, particularly with some of the very low-yield nuclear devices deployed by the United States, like the uh, Davy Crockett, which was about the same um, TNT equivalent as the current Moab, the so-called mother of all bombs, you know? Right, which uh, is the which highest the uh, conventional weapon that was uh, famously recently dropped on Afghanistan and then I believe again somewhere else, right? Uh, Afghanistan, yes. I think the Russians might have one slightly bigger or somewhat bigger. But yeah, it's essentially the same size as the smallest yield nuclear device the U.S. deployed. But it, But it's not a nuclear weapon, right? I mean, I would assume that the response by everybody when we dropped the Moab, which was mixed, uh, would have been quite a bit different. Not that we have a weapon yield capability anymore, but if we had used a nuclear device to do it. Uh, and particularly during the Cold War, uh, you know, if the United States or NATO forces had started using um, theater nuclear, what's called theater nuclear weapons on the battlefield, I mean, if I yes. were the Soviets, my thought would be like, okay, nuclear war is coming, let's preempt, because whoever gets, and this is part of why it gets crisis stability, right? Because the person who goes first is going to probably eat fewer warheads. Not that mm. it's going to make much difference in the long run, but depending on your force structure and the force structure of your adversary, you can destroy some of their capability. And if you can kill their leaders, you know, their response will not be as organized and as militarily, quote unquote, militarily effective as it would have theoretically. I see. In so reality. it's this, this idea that actually you're mitigating people because there's not a mutually assured destruction so much as there is the first strike is at an advantage compared to the counter strike. A slight advantage is one way of looking at it. Yes. Um, but, you know, your, your 200 largest urban centers are still going to eat warheads. Like, you, at the end <laughs> oh, of the yeah, day... Oh, yeah, no, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not being a pro-first strike yeah. advocate here or anything like no, that. No, no, just... I'm just saying that um, this is the reason why escalation happens. It's, it's one of them. And when we discuss these things, as Carol Cohn calls it, we often do so in this techno-strategic register, especially mm -hmm. when we're having these sort of abstract discussions about North Korea and America and Russia and what is provocative and what is not provocative. And oftentimes in these types of conversations, we play in this abstract realm without grounding it in the actual politics and the actual way that people would respond. So this is one thing I worry about very much with North Korea. We know, or at least we're told, and theoretically, the Russians can verify that the B-1 bomber is not nuclear capable, right? Um, mm -hmm. The North Koreans seem to think otherwise, or at least publicly they act like they do. And the North Korean early warning radars, right? I mean, they're crap, you know? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've worried about, especially with Trump and Kim Jong-un trading these really petty personal insults on social media and yeah. at the UN and such, is what happens if during a crisis, you know, your early warning radar says, hey, we've got bombers inbound or a missile or, you know, Trump tweets something and you're the North Korean military and you think, okay, this is it. Like, you're more likely than not potentially in a use it or lose it situation. And that's 
you know, some really nasty mistakes can happen that way, Absolutely. especially for North Korea, because they don't have the force structure or the command and control to be able to absorb a U.S. first strike and reliably respond. And they don't have any prayers of setting up anything where they could be sure that things are mutual or, for example, they wouldn't have. So some of the false alarms that have been foiled in the past, I think, have been foiled because people have had backup ways of detecting whether there was yeah. a strike or not. And they've looked at it and said, actually, you know, our radar says this, but our satellites say something different. So we'll probably call off the counter-strike for a few minutes and yeah. see what happens. But that can't happen and, with North Korea. Well. Yes. Uh, and from their perspective, I would imagine, right, the United States is a hell of an adversary. And from their perspective, I would argue one of the first goals is making sure the United States believes that it cannot carry out a splendid first strike and get away without eating a nuke. Yes, and, absolutely. Uh, Otherwise, their deterrent is incredible. Yeah. And currently, you know, the way our quote unquote administration talks, I don't know that they believe that. But there are many also, uh, even besides um, the United States, continental United States eating a warhead, though, I mean, there are many reasons why a strike against North Korea is a terrible idea, not least of which are the hundreds of thousands or millions of people who would die in a conventional war. And this is why one of the big reasons we didn't go in in the 90s, right? I mean, the addition of a nuclear capability to North Korea is worrisome and distressing and not great. Yes. From but it my perspective, the fact that there's all these yeah. conventional artillery pointed at Seoul. You know, potentially exactly. capacity to strike somewhere like Tokyo now, they're saying, with nuclear weapons. And that has always been the case. And the North Korean standing army, which is something like, I don't know, the, in terms of sheer numbers. Yeah, it's up yeah. there. It's one of the Huge. biggest organizations in the world in terms of the people that it employs. You, well, if you can say employs. But yeah. yeah. So obviously that is the reason why this problem wasn't quote unquote dealt with decades ago. There were, there were other things that, right, I mean, the agreed framework we can argue about. Is, you know, to, it, it did, so, right? I mean, North Korea has one plutonium production reactor rather than, what, the other two that they were planning on building mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. prior to the agreed framework. I mean, that's a large amount. Now, granted, they also have centrifuges. Da -da 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 -da. I mean, pulling out of that, at the very least, was one of those branch moments where it's like, okay, had we not, you know, at least there's the possibility or a stronger possibility we'd be in a different place right now. Um, sure, sure. I guess I just meant to say that that's the reason why the regime wasn't toppled back in the 1990s, yeah. as a lot of, uh, I guess, oh, yeah. right-wing talking heads are talking about being such a slam dunk, which I think is a very disingenuous uh, opinion oh, yeah. to have. None of them have, have, nobody has in any manner suggested to me a way in which we could kick off, start a war with North Korea, and China's not going to get involved. Like, we did this in the 50s, well, they invaded, but, right, I mean, in the 50s, mm -hmm. you know, the, just China is not going to be down at this point, I would argue, for a unified, Western-friendly Korea on their border. No. And, right, I mean, a, a nuclear war with North Korea would be terrible and awful, and a lot of people would die, and it's absolutely nothing compared to what would happen with a nuclear war with China. Well, that is that is sort of world-ending uh, scale that that would very quickly evolve into. Yeah. Um, as opposed to just a standard regional ending scale where only a few tens yeah. of millions of people die, which is basically fine in these war game scenarios. So I think this is the problem that you're saying is this idea that people uh, get so caught up in abstract military planning and being like the whopper computer out of war games and so on and imagining what might happen if such and such an amount of missiles were fired in such and such a direction. And it always reminds me of... Um, there's that quote about the naval officer who had an idea of how to prevent nuclear war from happening, that the nuclear code should be implanted into the heart of a volunteer, so that if the yep. president ever wanted to strike or counter-strike, he'd have to stab the volunteer and physically engage in an act of violence 
And there wouldn't be this yeah. psychological distance between the abstract discussion of nuclear war, which is kind of what we're having here, an abstract discussion of nuclear oh, yeah. war, and the sort of horrendous um, violence and, and terror on the ground, which we can find out. I mean, in, in my episodes, I, I quote some survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki just to get that point across. Bearing that in mind, the idea that these abstract discussions are so removed from the, the horrors of what this would actually entail... How do you think we can get the psychological impact of this across to people better and move out of this abstract realm of discussion? Well, I think that certainly the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, which got just got the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the ban treaty has done tremendous work in trying to make clear to people the humanitarian consequences of nuclear weapon use, that even a single nuclear weapon on a single city would be a humanitarian disaster that rapidly would approach, you know, beyond our limits to imagine. I mean, multiple warheads on multiple cities is just, you know, it would be unmanageable by any realistic definition of that term. And this is a long-standing problem that goes back, I'm most familiar with its state instantiation in United States civil defense discourse, where the problem was, okay, how do we produce a sense of productive anxiety rather than a sense of paralyzing terror or you know, blase unconcern, um, mm -hmm. because the idea for the U.S. government was to get the American population to do civil defense themselves. And honestly, it's a it's a really rough job and really tough, um, in part because no single message and no single education or informational campaign or whatever is going to be interpreted, taken up, and acted on in the same way by other people. And as I have experienced or as I have learned more experientially myself over the last year, the coping resources or degree that people are able to engage with this topic varies wild by person, you know? Um, it's a really, and this is one reason I would argue many people didn't build fallout shelters in America, being daily reminded that your entire world can end like that is uh, really stressful. So I, say, I guess what you're saying is in terms of the psychological response, there's just this tendency for people to go either, this is so apocalyptic, I can't conceive of it, and so I will just ignore it as if it's not going to happen, because there is no thinking about a world after a nuclear war. There is no reason to think about that. People just view it as, I guess, beyond the realms of comprehension and switch off emotionally and psychologically when you discuss it. When you say you've seen this range of response from people, um, do you want to talk about your experiences talking to people about uh, nuclear weapons and the threat today and the threat in the past and what sort of range of reactions you get from people? I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there is an absolute tendency for people to engage in avoidance behavior when discussing the apocalypse for mm -hmm. nuclear apocalypse and, and climate change, too, to be honest, because they are massive issues that we as individuals do not feel a large amount of control, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and especially with nuclear weapons, it's a very rarefied discourse and register. And yet at the same t time in 1983, you know, a million people showed up in New York City to call for a nuclear freeze. Um, I don't know how we get back to that, but I think that that's what we need, right? Large scale public demonstration and commitment to reducing the risk of nuclear weapons being used, um, like I said, I'm not quite sure how we get to that, but I think that we, that, you know, now more than ever, it is especially important since the end of the Cold War. And I think this episode with North Korea could be, if we don't just forget it as the next thing comes along, could be very useful for reminding people these things exist. We still live in a world where there's a nuclear doomsday machine and something needs to be done about it. So when you talk to them about nuclear weapons, what's the sort of range of reactions that you get? I mean, it's not a, it's not, you know, it's not a representative sample. Um, and actually, 
Mm-hmm. But again, it, it varies greatly from, and we can also see this in the sorts of public discourses around this idea that like Mattis or Kelly will be able to stop a nuclear launch if Trump orders one, right? Uh, or this very widespread folk belief that presidential use of nuclear weapons requires the Joint Chiefs or Congress or the Secretary of Defense to sign off on it. We are very, in my experience, we are very uncomfortable in the United States with admitting that the president has pretty impressively broad authority to use nuclear weapons as he or she sees fit, as they see fit. Um, Part of that is because, again, in this this very particular moment, Donald Trump has nuclear launch authority. Um, And part of it is also that it's deeply and profoundly undemocratic to give the president of the United States that sort of ability with virtually no checks and balances. And it goes against your constitution as well. Sorry for interjecting with all the wow. There's this idea that the war powers should be Congress's yeah. responsibility, but Congress hasn't voted for a war since 1941, I suppose. Um, and yeah. everything is done by the executive branch and approved by Congress afterwards. And the argument people used to get around that is they say, oh, Congress has the power of the purse, which means that if Congress didn't like a war, they could uh, defund the army, which is one of the most disingenuous political arguments I think I've yeah. ever heard. The idea that Congress would ever vote to defund the army in America. People are going to vote to defund the troops while they're out there in the field? Give me a break. So we, never, yeah. war is now an executive power in the United States. But I think it's interesting you talk about the folk beliefs around, you know, Donald Trump orders a nuclear strike on CNN headquarters and Mattis hits him with a wrench so he can't do it. I mean, but what you're saying is that effectively there is no need for any additional authorization aside from the commander in chief. How much do we know about that, uh, the power structure? Is it just the case that because it's never been done, we don't really know how it would go down if it happened? Or, or is it the case that it's just so top secret that people aren't really aware and, and misinformation is intentionally propagated to the public about it? How much do we know about the procedure? Uh, I mean, first off, I think that if, if Trump were to try and order domestic use of nuclear weapons, that would probably not <laughs> That's a slight uh, exaggeration. Well, yeah. yeah. Key, key word being probable. Probably. Uh, but otherwise, right, I mean, he's followed by the guy with the briefcase, uh, yeah. the you know, President's Emergency Satchel, the nuclear uh, football. You know, if Trump wakes up tomorrow and orders up a, a well done on North Korea and a medium rare on China, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to happen, I would argue. So my understanding of the process is essentially the president turns to the duty officer and says, OK, I want to use nukes. And they open up the little black, uh, big black briefcase and they select an option. That option gets transmitted to the National Military Command Center. The president has authenticated his identity with codes on him. And then that order is distributed to the combatant commanders and then to the individual delivery systems. Uh, so the system was designed, uh, you know, to be very responsive in the event that you had submarine launch ballistic missiles coming in onto D.C., in which case your time to respond could be as little as five, ten minutes. Yes, there's Legally, the idea of the four-minute warning, isn't there? The four-minute warning that we'd get before a nuclear strike. And so oh. if we're going to have a system that will uh, that will be able to respond within potentially four minutes, it there can be no room for checks and balances, realistically. I mean, the, the UK public was never going to get four minutes of warning. <laughs> uh, I mean, just realistically speaking. At least in, in my mind, although some of the most like poignant and disturbing conversations I've had with people have involved when they were children, when, you know, in the UK, and they would talk about as children, what they would do with their four minute warning, thinking it through as children. And it included things like, you know, I'd go to the candy counter and eat as much X as I could. It's like, <laughs> that's really traumatizing. Yeah, to think that people were, you know, contemplating 
realistically what you, what would happen if you were given four minutes yeah. to, to live? We have uh, a series of infrared detecting satellites. So we will detect um, if it's a ballistic missile. We would detect any launch from Russian or Chinese or North Korean uh, submarines or ICBMs within three to five minutes. I mean, once it breaks cloud, uh, cloud cover and out into space. Um, submarine launch ballistic missiles, if you can get the subs close enough, you know, 10 to 15 minutes before they hit DC, maybe. Um, the timelines are incredibly short. Sorry, we've seen crisis situations unfold that have actually led us perhaps to believe that things don't operate as smoothly as they do in the ideal nuclear response handbook, right? Four yeah. minutes. If your timeline is four minutes, one person being on their phone or something when they should be looking at the screen is enough to make the difference. Yeah, uh, and that's part of why uh, U.S. keeps certain forces on such high alert, part of why there was such communicative redundancy. It was part of what was used to justify the large numbers of delivery systems, and it continues to be. Uh, so this idea that, in part, uh, that IC U.S. ground-based ICBMs, which are pretty useless these days, I'd argue, um, are there so that an adversary would have to, Russia basically, because they're the only ones who could contemplate this, would have to um, attack 400 targets rather than just Washington DC and the submarine bases, and therefore they'd have to commit more of their nuclear forces, and we'd know for sure it was a big attack. And it's like, if somebody nukes Washington DC, I think that's a pretty clear indication they're not interested in limited war. Yes, uh, yes. But... So once again, we're seeing this divorce between the world of uh, nice yes. military plans and four minutes of warning for the public and the ways in which people have tried to make this comprehensible and understandable. And they've tried to normalize it, I suppose, into part of a procedure that seems ordered. And yet it, it, it runs into what could only be chaos and confusion and a sort of horrendous, philosophically, a horrendous end for humanity and the, the last few minutes of scrambled confusion before, you know, the mushroom clouds started rising up all over the major cities. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I'm reasonably confident, yeah, 90%, that if the United States in the midst of being under nuclear attack from Russia for whatever reason, then we would get our warheads off. I mean, we've put huge amounts of money, time and effort. Uh, they're always the subs, you know, type of deal. Back in the 40, back in the 50s, you know, they maybe had a little bit more reason to worry. Um, but Eisenhower, for instance, solved that through solved, quote unquote. But uh, he did incredibly broad pre-delegation of nuclear launch authority. So this is one of the other really weird things that can happen is the president uh, can pre-delegate launch authority to basically anybody, to me, if he wanted to. Um, <laughs> The defense secretary, for example, would have the authority to launch nuclear weapons on his own. If the president had, you know, promulgated an order saying under these conditions, the secretary of defense is able to exercise my nuclear launch authority. Yes. So what happens if the president is killed and nobody can find the vice president, you know, for a little while or the vice president is in the air out of, you know, incommunicado, right? The defense secretary has launch authority and chooses may or may not. Let's say that they choose to use it. Nuclear launch authority does not necessarily have to follow the civilian line of presidential succession which is really, again, really weird for a country that's nominally you know, democratic republic. So you're saying, when you say it doesn't follow the civilian line of presidential succession, I guess in our heads we have this idea that if the president is killed, it's the vice president, and then if the vice president is yeah. killed, it's the, who is it next, president of the Senate or something, and then it goes through Speaker to... Speaker of the House. Yeah, and then pro tem of the Senate. Right. And then you start getting into the cabinet uh, in the order that they were founded. Okay. So this is our idea of how it works. But you're saying that the pre-delegation means that, for example, he could say, 
you know, my favorite general, um, if, if things go down, you have the authority to launch a counter-strike. You could, and Eisenhower did. Uh, so Eisenhower, NATO, the NATO, uh, the SAC, or uh, excuse me, the guy in charge of the NATO troops, for instance, under certain conditions, if he was unable to contact the president, he had launch authority. Um, NORAD had launch authority to use warheads for continental air defense. Um, Kennedy, when he got in, was very uncomfortable with the degree of pre-delegation Eisenhower had done and rescinded a lot of it. What is pre-delegated now is, you know, we don't know. Um, but it's also important to note that there's a difference between authority and capability. Yes. The U.S. military does not need civilian leadership to use nuclear weapons. There is, there's no launch code held by the president that the military absolutely requires. And, um, I mean, the president carries a biscuit that carries a set of identifying codes. Those are not needed for launch. You know, and Clinton lost his, Reagan's uh, got picked up by the FBI as evidence after the shooting. Carter sent his to the laundry. You know, <laughs> you just replace him. I see. So, so you're saying that in a lot of ways, our view of how the command and control structure works in the country that we know most about, which is, I mean, we've been talking, this has been a US centric discussion so far, because we don't know so yeah. much about how uh, the UK system works. We don't know so much about how the Russian system works, the Chinese, Pakistan, India, Israel, and anyone else. Who Pakistan has and, I mean, it varies, and, and we know a little bit about how the Soviet system used to work. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue that the degree of authority vested in the U.S. president is unusual, if not unique. You know, the U.K. system, my understanding is it's the prime minister. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know. I, I don't deal with that. Apologies. Uh, but I know that, like, with Pakistan, for instance, right, you have to get whatever. If you're the civilian chief uh, president and you don't have the army chief on your side to use nukes, you're not going to get to use nukes. Mm -hmm. um, India, for instance, has like a three-person or a multi-person national command authority. China doesn't, at least until recently, maybe they do now, but China, for instance, historically hasn't kept weapons mated to delivery vehicles, right? Which also imposes a time delay on if whoever's in charge at the moment says, you know what, I want to use new. During the Soviet era, it appears that the premier didn't have the sort of power that like the president does now. So the premier would have to get the chief of rocket forces on board and probably the chief of defense too, you know? So again, my, my argument would be that the U.S. system is a little concentrated and historically aberration in that manner. Okay, that's very interesting. In that sense. Because you would have thought that actually, in some ways, I guess I had at the back of my mind, in some ways, a greater threat of an accident or or else some some anomalous launch of nuclear missiles, say by a disgruntled subordinate or something. I would have thought that was more likely to happen in the other countries. But in some ways, the system that the US has set up, which is so um, brittle in some ways to get around the threats in the Cold War. So, you know, they're worried about decapitation. So they say, fine, we'll allow yep. the president to pre-delegate. They're worried about uh, the timings of the strike. So they say, OK, everything has to take place within four or five minutes. And they've sort of subsequently made it sound like, you know, everything is concentrated in the president and you elected him. So that's fine. But in reality, you know, I mean, thank God for uh, U.S. military um, subordination to the civilian wing. Right. Yeah. You know, I like I'm, I'm not worried that a combatant commander is going to say, all right, let's just go ahead and launch this. You know, mm -hmm. um, at this point, I'm much more worried about the person vested legally yeah. with nuclear launch authority making a really silly decision uh, based off of ignorance and impetuousness and a lack of understanding and a lack of caring about the consequences. Well, uh, so, I mean, for instance, pretty devoid of empathy. Sorry, you were going to say. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And really, so to go back to your comment about rationality, 
what we mean by rationality during in conversations about nuclear deterrence is not what we generally mean by rationality, you know, in this kind of common sense perspective. Um, for nuclear deterrence, right, rationality just requires that you be able to engage in some form of cost-benefit analysis of certain actions and their consequences. Uh, but what happens when you have a person in power whose cost-benefit calculus is centered not on the preservation of the state and regime, you know, but on their personal fulfillment and ego, right? What happens when you elect somebody who would rather flip the checkerboard than lose a game? So if we go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, right after you had Kennedy make that comment about, you know what, you should always leave your adversary an honorable way out. Like, never put them in a position where their only choice is humiliation or nuclear war, because uh, they might choose the nuclear war. And similarly, when you mentioned the issue of unitary decision-making in a government, I mean, that's another assumption in nuclear deterrence that's just not tenable, right? Kim Jong-un has a wide range of internal pressures on his regime. And this is one of the things I worry about with the name-calling and the speech at the UN, right? Kim feels as though there are certain uh, image and things that he has to do to retain his leadership position, right? Name-calling and taunting him is not a great way to, like, get him to show restraint. Well, at that point, the gods of technology saw fit to end the discussion slightly prematurely, just when we were really getting into the joys of nuclear war. But I wanted to finish off by quoting something that Martin often says. In fact, it's how he signs off on Twitter every night. His Twitter is at NuclearAnthro, by the way, and it's in the title of this show, so you really have no excuse for forgetting. That quote is, We built them. We can take them apart. If you think that nuclear weapons are an existential risk to humanity, you're correct. But there are things we can do to mitigate this risk. Having fewer systems on high hair-trigger alert. Keeping the issue in the public consciousness. Even just an acknowledgement, a contemplation of what nuclear war would really be like, and how dangerously close we are to it. That would be an improvement on the situation at the moment. I think as an existential threat, nuclear war suffers from the Y2K bug problem. People were concerned about that for decades, and we managed to avoid it by the skin of our teeth. And so people assumed that the original concerns were unfounded. But there's no way to know that, and every reason to suspect that they were justified, that we've barely escaped. If you believe, as those involved did, that the Cuban Missile Crisis involved a 1 in 3 risk of nuclear war, well then 2 out of 3 times you'll walk away from that kind of situation unscathed. How many incidents like that will we risk as a society, as a civilization? There are things we can do, from putting pressure on politicians to ban and limit the amount of nuclear weapons that we have, a resolution passed in the UN recently that effectively outlawed the possession of nuclear weapons, to be more transparent about how they might be used, all the way to voting for saner candidates in our elections. Even just changing the discourse of nuclear weapons, away from this abstract, distant, calculating way that we talk about nuclear war in terms of strike and counter-strike, strategic and tactical advantages, as if any of those things make sense in a world where hundreds of millions of people would have died. It's difficult to contemplate what it would actually mean, and even more difficult to turn that horror and fear into something constructive. As humans, our psychology is such that it's difficult to use our fear in constructive ways. It's often more of a paralytic than a motivator. We're conditioned for fight or flight rather than more nuanced responses. And it's difficult for us to accept that we now live in a world where our civilization could be destroyed by accident or by a few key mistakes rather than by some malevolent force. When nuclear weapons were first invented, a lot of the physicists behind that, a lot of the people who were involved in developing nuclear weapons, 
thought that it would bring in a new age of peace and cooperation for humanity, purely because the fact that we'd now have to accept that we've grown up as a species, that we have this capacity for incredible destruction, it would prevent us from mindless wars and mindless slaughter. Instead, we've got into the realm of this thinking about the deus ex atomica. We no longer think about nuclear weapons as a motivator for greater cooperation. We just think about them in this millenarian way. You remember the millennial belief that there is either a utopia or a dystopia around the corner? We think about it, as Martin says, as the deus ex atomica. The fact that nuclear war has happened never means that it will never happen, can never happen. Or on the other side of the belief system, that atomic weapons are like a vengeful god that we cannot control, and the world is doomed to be cleansed in thermonuclear fire, and if that happens, there's nothing we could have done to prevent it. And both of these points of view are terribly mistaken. There is a very, very real risk, but there are real things we can do to mitigate that risk. We're not powerless here. The message we should be walking away with is, we built them, we can take them apart if we want to. I'd also like to thank Martin, both for coming on the show as a guest and also for being an immensely entertaining presence online. Alongside his Twitter, you can visit his blog at deusexatomica.wordpress.com and his Patreon account, that's patreon.com slash nuclearanthro, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash nuclearanthro. There you'll find posts about the latest in his nuclear weapons research, cool images and things that he discovers along the way, and even an inaugural podcast episode. That's right, I originally conducted this interview way back in November, and in the intervening time, Martin has launched his own podcast. The first episode deals with the Trump administration's recent nuclear posture review, and it's a great entertaining listen. Some more updates on this show. We also have a Patreon, but if you don't like the subscription model, there are individual episodes that you can buy, leaving me a PayPal tip of a couple of dollars. You can find that PayPal at paypal.me slash physicspodcast. paypal.me slash physicspodcast. You can leave us a couple of bucks there and email me, which you can do through the contact form on our website, or by leaving a comment under an episode thread, and I'll get your episode through to you. There's the second part of the one we did about aliens, which is quite entertaining listen. Um, it's a great way for you to support the show. Hosting costs aren't free, etc, etc. But also, isn't it nice just to support independent podcasters? I know I feel better about it than overpaying for a cinema ticket when you wonder how much of that money actually goes through to the people who made the film in the first place. You can find all of those details at our website, www.physicspodcast.com, or via the Twitter feed, which is at physicspod. It's a two-way street, though. If you have feedback, comments, concerns, questions, please, please get in touch with me via the Twitter or the website contact form. I want to make this show as enjoyable as possible for the listeners. Without happy listeners, there's no show. So let me know what you'd like to hear and if there's anything you'd like to fix. Next week, we'll finish off nuclear weapons, for now at least. We then have a series of fascinating episodes for you about science in the Soviet Union. Just for a slight break from the apocalypse, we're going to the Gulag. After that, we'll loop back around and discuss overall thoughts on the Teotihuacan specials. I got some feedback the other day that this relentless focus on the end of the world is starting to depress some of you, so after we move to the Gulag for a month, we're going to have to talk about ways to avoid it, and even dreams of utopia. And then, to cap it all off, we'll have a show about the end of everything. And what's left after that? Just all of physics. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, take care of yourselves. 
Be aware that you're alive right now, and notice how very strange and improbable this should be. I'll speak to you all soon. You better make some preparations, there's no time for hesitations, compile a list of tips. Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. Do get ready.